It is my pleasure to give you another Tactical Faith Musings, this time on the important subject of justice, race, and the gospel. I am accompanied on this podcast with Dr. Neil Shinvey, Dr. Calvin Bell, uh, Miss Tamika Moment, and my friend Keelan, Reverend Keelan Adams. Uh, we spent a night, uh, probably one of the longest podcasts that I've ever done, talking about this important issue and, in, to be honest with you, doing it with grace and with Christ-like grace. Um, I'm really proud of how this conversation went, and I'm proud that we, as Alabamians, can get together and talk about these important issues. Uh, if you want any more information, please go to tacticalfaith.com. And hopefully we can have more of these conversations. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Tactical Faith. It is my pleasure and my honor uh, to do another Tactical Faith Musings. This is where I get three or more guests together to talk about important issues of the faith here at Tactical Faith. Uh, Of course, we're a state here in the United States, and we're affected um, by what everybody else is being affected with right now. We just got out of covid still in it, but that's, you know, something that we're not going to be discussing today. Today, we're going to be talking about a really important issue, and that's an issue that's on everybody's heart and mind right now, which is justice and the gospel, and how do we, as many races that are kind of put together here in the United States, how can we deal with each other in our different cultures and our different understandings and experiences, our wants and our desires and our loves? Uh, It is important at Tactical Faith that we get together and we have these candid conversations but we have it together in love and openness and we can be honest with each other. And I think I put together uh, a pretty great group of people. Um, uh, We have Dr. Neil Shinvey. We'll be referring to him as Neil. Uh, You know, he's somebody that was brought to me by Jay Watts from mere uh, human ministries, uh, merely human ministries. Uh, He's somebody that I will put all of his bio and all his stuff in all these people's bio uh, and information in our, in, in with, along with, uh, the podcast. Uh, we have Dr. Calvin Bell, uh, with us today. We have brother Reverend Keelan Adams and Tamika, uh, Tamika, what is your last name? Is it Tamika moment? Yes. Okay. What a great name. What a beautiful name. Thank you all of you for coming along, especially in this time of, of really kind of it's a very kind of dangerous and what seemingly a violent time, but also a time where we can, we can think about it and reflect on it and maybe move forward and move forward in a place of justice and move closer to God's kingdom and, and Jesus's throne. What I'm going to do is I'm going to throw this to, to Dr. Neil, to Neil. Uh, I'm going to ask a, just a fundamental question and then you can ask uh, our other three uh, uh, people here uh, uh, any other questions, but, what is what is race? Uh, what is race to you? How do you define race? And 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 for and I guess for the edification of those and for the knowledge of those who are listening to this, um, you, you're of you're of mixed race, correct? Yes, I'm uh, I'm half half white, half Indian. So what is race to you? How do you define race? Yeah, so um, race, as we understand it today, is as uh, a social construct. It's not a biological reality. It's not a biblical concept. Like you don't see races in the Bible in the sense that we understand them. So people like black, white, uh, Asian, those are sort of races we recognize. Well, those ideas were developed in the 17th and 18th centuries around then, maybe a little before then. And they were largely developed in order to justify a kind of racial hierarchy. So who gets to be on top? 
the white people and the other races are sort of placed lower on the totem pole. Um, and that sounds strange. You're like, really? Is that is that true? And it, well, yeah, and, and that you can kind of look at how race, the idea of race developed. If you look at the history, it's really shocking and fascinating um, how people actually in the 18th and 19th centuries, there were actually scientists who wanted to undermine the idea of monogenesis, the idea that we all came from Adam and Eve, because they didn't want to believe that we all came from one blood, as Paul says in Acts 17. So they were out there saying things like, maybe there were like many different human species that all had their own ancestors. And Thomas Jefferson actually was toying with that idea. So they were really resisting the biblical witness that no, we're all one blood. Um, so that's how deeply that idea ran. And then in more recent, and then in more recent times, you, um, I've been reading some, uh, some uh, statements from uh, miscegenation trials. Those were trials when it was against a lot of married people outside of your race. And they were just really perverse and almost farcical exchanges between uh, the, the, the judges and the witnesses in this trial between, say, two people that were both sort of weirdly mixed race, and they were trying to figure out, are you both white, or is one of you white and one black, or are you both black? And there were whole trials uh, that were the, the witnesses were like, is their hair curly enough to be black, or uh, is, their, is their complexion, quote-unquote, bright enough to be white? It was it's, again, almost like a farce, but it was sort of disgusting that these are a man and a wife who are being judged as to whether their marriage is legal. Um, so it, it really shows you how the, the concept of race developed over time. And fortunately, you know, as, um, as the civil rights movement uh, took off, uh, we've begun to realize that a lot of this is just skin deep, um, that we are all one blood, and, uh, and therefore we've begun to realize that these sort of the hierarchies we realize are, are completely bogus. Um, so that's where race came from, and then our, our conception of race today is, is largely, I mean, obviously you have ancestors that came from certain regions, like I, my, half of my family came from India, um, but the idea that there are different kinds of human beings is just completely false and deeply unbiblical. So uh, I'll throw it to you, Kevin. How, how do you respond to that? So, Matt, I, um, I, I appreciate, uh, Doc, what he, what he had to share there. For me as an African-American from West Alabama. I'm, I'm from one of the poorest zip codes in the state of Alabama. Uh, and so race for me takes on the shape of black and white. And I know that there are many more people in the world. And I do understand the biblical concept that's been very well articulated by uh, Dr. Sh is it Shindy? Uh, Shindy. Yes. Uh, and so uh, very well articulated. But uh, in, um, in Alabama, and I'm contextualizing things, in Alabama, uh, and of course being raised in West Alabama, I, I see almost race as black and white, and, I, and that's a terrible way to express uh, things, uh, you know, uh, especially in light of what, what's all happening in the world. But but in my, in just in my little small world in which I connect, I'm, I, I, I'm here in Bessemer, Alabama, one of, still one of the poorest areas in, in, in the state. Uh, I, I have affiliations with in, at uh, Stanford University there in the uh, Homewood, a very well-funded area, one of the wealthiest zip codes, Mount Brook. Uh, and so, in, in, and the way I see world is the world is almost black and white, even though I see the other 
uh, races that are in the area. I don't have a whole lot of interaction with people that are uh, of other ethnicities. Um, and you're sure if you go to the gas station, there may be an interaction with a Middle Eastern person, or uh, if you go to, uh, uh, if I had to go in to, to buy a, a barber supply something, there may be an Oriental person. But otherwise, my world is black and white. Uh, and so when I see race, I see black and white. And, uh, and, and I think the majority of the people in the context of my community sees through that same screen because they don't have the same interactions I do. Most of the people in my communities have to deal with only one race, and that's more or less black. And, and the only time they're interacting with uh, Caucasian people is pretty much on the job or those who may be in, uh, in uh, uh, a higher education institution like UAB in, in, uh, particularly. Uh, if you're talking about going in a school system in Bessemer, well, the majority of the school students in Bessemer are African Americans. There may be a few uh, Hispanic students, um, very few whites, um, and the majority of the school system in my area. And if there are white students there, then they're, you know, in, within two or three years, they evacuate pretty quickly. So race is kind of reduced down to black and white in, in my context. So, Neil, if race is a construct, I mean, are we saying – that, that race has like social, economic, religious, psychological, like aren't there historical components to race? Uh, yes and no. So race is also sort of evolving. So you look back at like who is considered a white like in 1900, that it's changed from who's considered a white today. And so it's kind of this, it's a way we classify people. And I think fortunately, and it depends on the degree, but fortunately I think people are more and more not thinking of race in terms of hierarchy, right? That we realize that we're all of equal value in God's eyes and things like that. Um, but there's clearly, you know, along with how you are raced or you how you're fit into these categories, uh, comes other meanings. So you look at a, a white person or a black person or an Asian person, and you immediately have stereotypes like, oh, they're they're black. They have these these likes and dislikes. They're white. They must do the following things. So we have those meanings associated with the race. So it ties together things like culture, uh, class, all, all kinds of stereotypes that can might be might be accurate and might be very misleading. Um, so they, that's why they're all related. The meanings we give to these categories are again, there are things that are constructed. I mean, there's not actually something inherent about my being half Indian that makes me like a certain kind of food or, or music or clothing. Uh, but but people will see that as related, even though it's not really inherent to who I am as a person. But so, Keelan, what do we do? We do this though, right? I mean, um, maybe maybe not. It's maybe not a component of our DNA, but there is something to like. There, there's a show called in there a show like called Black Blackness or or Black I mean Blackish Blackish or or me talking about you know, where I come from, you know, I'm Irish and I'm, um, um, and I'm, you know, English. I mean, and, and I take some, you know, some, my family's taken pride from that. I mean, do you see that as a component of race? Like, uh, something that you being black, you feel an allegiance to because of your quote unquote blackness. Is that even such a thing to say? Well, I, I mean, there are some who adopt that, uh, but you know, as far as, so the, there are those with whom I identify according to the flesh, kind of like with, with Paul, where he was like, my kinsmen according to the flesh. You know, he kind of put it out there. Come from the tribe of Benjamin, such and such, and so and so. So 
he's acknowledging that, hey, I'm from a particular people and I know my lineage, I know what I'm connected to. Um, and so as far as what, what I'm concerned, so there, there are some who, you know, they would say, hey, I have full allegiance to this particular group of people. And as, you, as we have seen in the past, you know, it has uh, developed itself like uh, post-emancipation or post-reconstruction era to where it was allegiance over, um, you know, over the religion that actually came from the slave master. And it developed itself into different things like the 5% movement with, you know, up in New York with God, with the, like God, he's not the, you know, the Christian God, God is the black man. So you see, you kind of see how that evolved. Like I'm, I have allegiance to my race and I have so much allegiance that I'll actually make um, my entire race, the men in that race, God. Um, but now, I, I, could, I could really see what um, uh, Brother Neil was saying as far as the, um, you know, the, 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 the social construct, because that's, that's what it was. And he explained it well. It's like, dude, now, even though, I mean, me growing up, uh, being born in the 80s, an 80s baby, and then on into the 90s, you know, where I'm from, south, uh, the southwest Alabama, right there on the coast, that's all I know is black and white, you know, black, white, and then uh, and Indian, Choctaw down there uh, in that, in, in, on that flank of uh, Alabama. Um, so those, those, that, that's my world there. Um, but as I was able to grow, and then I was able to learn and see that, oh, wait a minute. So you got Samuel, you know, Samuel Cartwright, um, who really like just worked out uh, the, uh, the theory, and then you got Con, uh, uh, Carl von Linnaeus, like the, uh, the, the, the naturalist or the taxonomist or whatever, whatever uh, profession he had, and how those guys, they were creating, you know, they, they were creating this social construct to prove some sense of hierarchy with who would be the highest of the high, who would be more developed, because you remember they were actually measuring skulls during that, that time uh, on, on down the line, also one of their contemporaries, uh, Friedrich Blumenbach, he was around that time as well, measuring skulls and saying, oh, this skull is 10% smaller, you know, black skulls are 10% smaller than uh, Caucasian, those of Caucasian descent. So that means that there is a sense of dullness as far as intellect is concerned. Now that's coming from Blumenbach, Carl von Linnaeus, Samuel Cartwright, you know, doctor, taxonomist, and uh, yeah, with two two of those guys being uh, taxonomists. So so yeah, I could see that side because that's like the scientific side. But it took me to grow and kind of read material to find out how that entire web worked. But so for for me and as a believer, you know, I do fully understand that hey. You know, uh, as far as me being uh, African-American, I have identity uh, with African-American uh, people. We have the same features. We have uh, the same likings as far as taste for different things. And we like to dance. Mm. We like to get down. I don't know, Keelan. I've seen you dance. <laughs> <laughs> hey, 
Tamika, so now we're bringing in probably the smartest because you're the woman of the bunch, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and the woman is always the smartest. And uh, uh, tell me a little bit about this identity idea. Uh, you as an African-American woman, uh, do you even like to be described as an African-American woman or do you just like to be? Yes, yes, you definitely. Do? So you take, <laughs> do you take pride in, in, in I take, that? I take great pride in being um, an Af a black woman. Um but I take greater pride in being a Christian woman. Um, uh, my identity lies in Christ um, because, again, you know, I'm five years, almost six years in um, into my salvation. So um, even as an unbeliever, there was some sense of pride being a black woman, but my confidence really came as a Christian um, and I see a lot of people who were, you know, saved before I, you know, in my generation who were believers before I was, who, who put their blackness, um, their identity is in their blackness and not in being a Christian. You know, they put that first and uh, it just, it just bothers me and always. So, but I, I love the fact that you said your allegiance with, with Christ Neil, I, what do you what do you say about that? Where's where does it get to a point where where it gets in trouble, especially for a Christian or non or non Christian, when you start making certain kind of allegiances to to where you came from in terms of your race or uh, or your ethnicity? I mean, is there a point where that becomes problematic? And do we find that in Scripture, by the way? Because to play devil's advocate a little bit, I mean, the Jewish people took great pride in who they were. They took a great pride in their history. They took great pride in what they claimed as being a called out people amongst pagan people. Uh, so there was a sense where they took great uh, pride and meaning into their own identity. But where does that become, when does it become an issue? Yeah, this is a great question. So one thing I think we touched on was that while, while race is, a, is an unbiblical category, there's no race in the sense that we understand it in the Bible. There's no black and white and Asian in the Bible. But there are ethnoi, there are the nations, there are ethnic groups. Ethnicity is a biblical category, and it's referred to in the Bible. Now, some people will look at that and say, well, sure, but there are places like Galatians 3.26 that says there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female in Christ. And so shouldn't we just completely get rid of these identity markers? Aren't we all just Christians now? There's no sense in which I should be proud of my ethnicity or my culture or my heritage or anything. We're just a Christian. I'd say, well, no, because I think it was uh, Keelan who pointed out that Paul says, you know, he was proud of being Jewish. He said, these are my people. I, you know, when he found other fellow believing Jews, he rejoiced. They're great comfort to me. So you see it all over the Testament where Paul uh, is, is, I don't say proud like arrogant, but he was, he was not ashamed to be Jewish. He was Jewish. He'd say that. Um, however, the key, so the idea that, and the other thing is that if you say, well, we should just be totally uh, unaware of, of, ethnicity in the church, it's all in Galatians 3, it's all been abolished. You say, wait a minute, male and female are also in Galatians 3, 26, 28, and we don't turn into non-gendered people anymore. We, come, we don't become non-males and non-females. We're still males and females, and that's a good thing. God created us, male and female, and he created our nations. He created our ethnicities. Those are good things. We can be proud of our heritage, and we can like our culture, and like our food, and um, but here's the thing. So that's also, we shouldn't go, the one extreme is sort of call, call it colorblindness, which I don't like that term, but we call it ignoring ethnicity, pretending it doesn't exist. You shouldn't do that. 
we should be colorblind in, in saying we shouldn't treat people differently, <laughs> sure, but we shouldn't ignore gender, we shouldn't ignore ethnicity, we shouldn't ignore what we like and don't like. However, the other extreme is, uh, and the great place to go is this, Philippians 2. Philippians 2, Paul talks about how he's a Hebrew of Hebrew, of the tribe of Benjamin, you know, and he, he was the ultimate Jew, but what does he say at the end? But whatever was to my gain, I consider loss, rubbish, for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ my Lord. So when you have, not only is being a Christian your primary identity, it is like infinitely more important than any other identity. So it's not just, well, it's the first among many. It's that and for Paul, it was so important to him that he's a Christian now. That everything else was the you know the, the actual Greek word's not very polite. It's a, it's a dung, right? Uh, right? Compared to being a Christian, so that's the key. Not so we so certainly we don't erase gender, we don't erase ethnicity, but it's gotta always be so much less important than being a being united to Christ and the kind of fellowship we have as believers around a common Savior should make everything else so much less important. So I, I have more in common, I say, I have more in common, you know, with a, uh, at a, at a deep metaphysical spiritual level with a, you know, Vietnamese peasant, right? I speak a different language then, but if they believe in Jesus, we are brothers in Christ. Hmm. Then I deal with like another half Indian theoretical chemist, right? Who is not a believer. At a deep level, we, we don't, you know, we're not part of the same body, whereas all believers are one in Christ. So, Keelan, this this one's going to be to you. Um, that's where we want to be, right? I mean, it's, it's, it was, we frame this discussion as brothers and sisters. We're all gearing and headed towards a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, but the here but not yet. We're here, and we're dealing with, uh, well, let's just deal with brothers and sisters within the church. Um, help me understand uh what's going on in the world today in terms of, of, of us trying to here in Alabama and in the country, um, try to hear each one other, you know, each one of us hear each other out. I'm a white man. You're an African American man. What, what, what to you is these points of conflict? What is racism? Okay. What is racism? So that's, that's getting to the heart of things. Um, racism now, a way that we can define racism. Now, when we, when we go back to what, uh, what Brother Neil said, now we, if we go back, because he pointed it out, the 1700s, that kind of helps us with our answer a little bit when we look at these two guys. Or, well, actually, it's, it's more. There were more, uh, um, you know, because you had a number of doctors or whatnot who were they were influenced by this whole thing. It just so happened that a little baby was born out of that. And he wrote, he produced a book and uh, you know, he brought about a whole theory from it. That little baby was called Charles Darwin. You see, so he, he learned this stuff from some of, some of, some of his things from uh, like a Methodist minister, uh, Thomas R. Malthus, you know, he pledges allegiance to him in, in his book, uh, books on the descent of man and uh, the origin of species. Uh, so when you, you know, when you look at that, we have, we going back to the 1700s, Charles Chuck, I call him Chuck, 
truck being in the 1800s, man, there was stuff that were already set up. So when we look at racism, so Charles Darwin was born in the system, even though he was an Englishman. Uh, when we look at racism, we could define racism as um, a system structuring opportunity and allocating resources and also assigning value based on the social interpretation of how someone looks. Now, when you take that particular definition of racism, and once again, you know, when I look at the word race, that English word, and I break it down, I see race there, or a race runner. Now, when you uh, hit the rewind button, and you go away, you start moving away from the 1700s, heading towards the 1500s, and then bringing it back towards the 14 and 1300s. Then you're going to go back to the European nation states as the, you know, the, the different barbaric tribe, they started kind of basically gaining some pride amongst themselves saying, hey, like, we're no longer identifying with you. We're, we're about to be our own. We're, we're about to be Spain. We're about to be England. Um, even though, you know, they had already made that distinction, but it's just the, you know, with the technology that hit Spain from the Moors. And then when that technology started moving on up, towards the Northern European new uh, nation states, then they started separating themselves and started saying, wait a minute, we're about to run a race. And so that's when you started having different groups, the Spaniards being the vanguard of uh, racism and them just moving faster than anybody else from Europe. They were the, the fastest race runners. They made it over to the new world early then Italy, then next thing you know, you see the, uh, the English, and then the English, they just came over, and they, from sea to shining sea, they swept across the nation. And so they, in the end, the Englishmen, proved to be the fastest race runners. They were able to uh, uh, get uh, more, uh, garner more, more slaves, pull, uh, pull from Africa. They were able to pull from Africa the fastest. And then next thing you know, you start seeing all these islands out in the, out in the ocean, claimed by different European nation states. But if you notice, the English were the ones who were able to, you know, name these different islands after their queen and all these other different things. So you see Queen Elizabeth Island or Queen this island or that all over the globe. And you actually see those still maintaining their same name. Africa was getting weakened during that time. So Hey, it was just a perfect storm. Africa was weak enough to sell their own people to, uh, to other people. And uh, the Europeans were able to cash in on that. Next thing you know, a group pulled from West Africa. Uh, you know, they, were, they, they showed up to North America and they were gifted with poverty. Now, when we look at things today, other people bring their poverty from various places. Africans were gifted with their poverty. They were gifted. So it was like, hey, I'm gonna relegate you to the nothing more higher than the sand on the seashore of this land. We were gifted with that. Now, as, as time went on, other people brought their poverty 
And then also you think about how other people, as, as Neil also pointed out, other people are able to assimilate. So, so we, we may have missed it, but there are also different groups who even though, so like for example, Neil may be able to fit in, in certain contexts because he has a, uh, a, a white parent, then he may be able to be considered half and half. That's like you would have Hispanic white or white white. There are groups and those groups actually, <laughs> believe it or not, they actually matter. And they actually um, serve as a gauge on how good your health will be in America, believe it or not. So the only group that has a bad problem assimilating in any other group is the African-American group or those who are of African descent. So that's kind of my little spiel on uh, race, raceism, you know, since I define it as a, you know, a group of race runners, my race can run faster than your race. Um, so you have to, in the North American context, since race is a social construct, you have to look around and see, okay, if it's allocating certain resources, you got to look around and say, okay, who's at the top, who's at the bottom, who's doing pretty good in the middle? It's those who can gain access to loans, it's those who can gain access to all these different things that are uh, available in America. So I'll, I'll just kind of cut it right there because we might. No, that's good. Uh, respond to that, Neil, because I can, I can already hear the counter argument here of, of <laughs> systems, right? I mean, because that's what you hear. You, you hear his point, uh, Keelan's point, and then the counterpoint is there, are, there is no systemic race issue like right. that, at least right. not today. Uh, what do you say to that? How do you, how do you respond? We'll respond to Keelan and then respond to what I just said. So, the, well, the, okay, there is a lot there. So the, the two big competing definitions of racism that you'll find just in culture are the first one, which is the one you'll find in most dictionaries, which just says you know, racism is prejudice, discrimination, or antagonism directed against someone of a different race yeah. uh, based on the belief that one's own race is superior. That's, that's kind of just, you know, so it's prejudice. It's racial prejudice. And it's what, what, I think colloquially, most people, when they say racism, they, they, they think about prejudice, uh, personal enmity, animosity, etc. Um, the other big definition is prejudice plus power. Um, we won't get into systemic racism quite yet. That's something different. But um, the idea that a lot of, uh, uh, for lack of a better word, academic They, they will define race as institutional power. So it's sort of this idea of institutions that enable, um, that enable uh, prejudice to be in, encoded into laws and practices and policies. Um, so those are the two definitions that are out there in the culture. Uh, now, what I would say is that Christians should recognize that racism can indeed be put into systems. For example, you have slavery, chattel slavery, Racism was encoded into law, right? So it wasn't just there were just people that are mean and nasty slave owners. You also had laws and whole systems uh, that set up so that they would marginalize and enslave a particular race, right? However, the idea that racism is at its core individual, uh, I think that's important for us to keep. And the reason is because of this. Racism is a sin, Right, so racism is primarily, fundamentally a sin, right? Because because it devalues another human being made in God's image, right? Mm -hmm. Now, 
You say, well, wait a minute. So, but I, I agree. Sin can be codified into law. The Holocaust, Jim Crow, you, your abortion, you're codifying sin into law, right? But at its heart, sin is about your heart. It's about individual actions, thoughts, words, or deeds against God. Now, why does that matter? If people, when people adopt the prejudice plus power definition, they will often say this. By definition, people of color cannot be racist. I can read you some quotes from Robin DiAngelo, Beverly Tatum, but they will say, because people of color do not have institutional power, they can be prejudiced, but not racist. And I say, I would resist that definition. I know what they're saying, but here's the problem. Imagine I said, okay, um, there's adultery, which is sort of like you know cheating on your wife you know, or being unfaithful with marriage, plus institutional power, then there's just cheating. So you know, a, a woman by definition cannot be an adulteress because she's a woman. A man can have it, can be adulterous, but a woman can't. A woman will just cheats. I say, wait, 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 wait. Adultery is a sin, and sin doesn't depend on how much power my group has. Sin is just sin before God, before a holy God. So I think Christians should resist making two different things out of what's ultimately a sin against a holy God. And, I, and I am, I'm not saying we have to deny that racism can infect systems. I agree it can. But I would say, but let's not redefine the word because, like we wouldn't say, there's adultery for men and cheating for women. <laughs> there's not racism for white people and prejudice for everybody else. I'd say, no, it's, it's always a sin issue. It's always a heart issue. So by all means, let's talk about systemic issues. Let's not redefine the word. Does that make sense? Yeah, respond to that, Dr. Bell. Okay. Uh, so, Matt, you know, I'm a, I'm a very practical guy. And I, I think I think Neil is spot on there um, um, to suggest that, that sin it kind of centers around the core problem uh, with this. But, again, I have to go back to my little small world, uh, the little small world, the little small narrative uh, in which – most African-American Alabamians uh, ha have to deal with it, especially from rural areas. Uh, and that is that we, we see, when you talk about racism, yeah, we see that it's, yes, a sin, a systemic, simple type situation, uh, but it more or less uh, pointed from, uh, it more or less stemmed from just a group of people who enslaved uh, us as Africans, African-Americans, and have reduced us to uh, something of less than a human being. Uh, and so um, in, in, in just very, very minimal language when, when it comes to uh, a, a rural uh, African-American, people in rural Alabama and African-American context, uh, we, we see just the, the simple fact is that uh, when a white man, a white woman, or white men particularly look at us, all they see is just uh, something that is that is flushed down the toilet uh, bowl. Uh, again, uh, Neil has articulated very well, uh, as, as well as uh, um, uh, Keelan has articulated very well uh, the, the historical aspects of it. Uh, but then, you know, where I land as a very, a very practical person in this conversation is that so – when you when you talk to a black man in, in Bessemer, Alabama, a black man in Sumter County, Alabama, uh, then you know uh, you know they they wouldn't even understand anything you just said. Uh, mm -hmm. They weren't trying to figure out and say, okay, so but tell me why this white man who has lived across the field from me all of his life, I don't even know his his daughter, I don't know his wife, I don't know I don't know them. 
Uh, I don't uh, tell me why uh, we don't there's there they won't even dare even think about going to school with me. Uh, and so th that that's the little narrow world uh, in which I live, and I think the little narrow world, the little narrow narrative that I'm giving you right now, even though it seems sound it may sound very minuscule, very insignificant. Uh, it, it, it is the, it is the bomb that it, that that you see expressed uh, across America and the world right now. I don't know if that makes any sense at oh, all. No, it does. Tamika, do you have anything to say? That's great. Uh, Tamika, tell me. Yeah, what you that think. is. Uh, yeah, that's great. And and while you know us sitting here um, talking these that these things out and giving these definitions, just like what Dr. Bell said, you know, you have the narrative, you have to look at um, people and where they're coming from and in their mind, them being in this small area, wherever they are, they're going to think of, they're not going to think of what racism is as what it is truly defined historically, they're going to look at racism or how it is defined in their eyes and in the world that they see. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's, all of it is just spot on. Well, yeah. Neil, Neil, then what do we, thanks. Well, Neil, what, what do we do with this then? I mean, if it's, I mean, cause you, you're not arguing against them at any means. You're just saying there's an, yeah. there is an importance of thinking about the word, but, what about these experiences that these real down to earth experiences that, that they're having? I mean, what do you, and that that's across the board, across the country, apparently. Well, this is actually, I want to go back a little bit to the word because it sounds like you're like, Oh, you're so abstract and academic. And I want to know how do I talk to someone who looks across the field and says, why do these men hate me? Cause I'm black. Right. When I here's the thing, this is why it's so, you say, why all this nitpicking about words? What does it matter? Well, here's the thing. When a black man says, why do they hate me just because I'm black? There, there are two options. You can say, well, number one, racism is prejudice plus power. So the thing is, there's a system that's set up, to, and, and racism comes from this system that it enshrines these prejudices into structures, institutions, and, it, and it, that system is where racism comes from, right? That's the answer you'd give. That's where, why do they hate me? Well, it's the system. It's the power they have. It's the historical. Here's the thing. If you say, why do they hate me? You say, brother, it's sin. It's sin mm. in their hearts. They need a savior. Mm. See, see how different that answer is? So I, I'm not saying we, we overlook systems or overlook power, but man, what a chance to preach the gospel. You say, brother, they hate you because of sin. And you know, and, and, and here's the other thing, and and here's and here's the other thing. If you think it's all about the system, and you're outside of it, and you can't be racist because you're outside the system, it's possible to get bitter and to say, you know what, I can't be racist. They're racist because they're part of this. They have power, right? And you got to be careful because, and you're a sinner too. So when I say racism is in my heart, it's in my heart, your heart, all of our hearts. And praise God, we have a sinless Savior that we can appeal to. So that, it, it doesn't make it, I think people, people get so angry at the history of racism. They want to point out how it's been such a part of our country's history and our fabric of our, and our laws. And, um, and, and I, but I think we always, as Christians, have to say, look, we are angry too, but let's identify the problem rightly, which is our wicked hearts. And I remember this incredible story of, um, of Ruby Bridges. When she, uh, she's a little girl who integrated her uh, kindergarten school in, in New Orleans. And, um, and they asked her, and she faced death threats at age six. 
for being the first little black girl integrator school. And they asked her in an interview, they said, what do you do to these people who are literally, there's a woman who threatened to poison her, who'd follow her to school, a, a woman, a white woman, would follow her to school and threaten to poison this little girl. They said, Ruby, what do you do for her? And she said, I pray for her. Mm. I pray for her. See, she had, inter she had understood it's not about systems of power. It's about sin. And I have a savior, and she can have one too. Mm. Sorry, a little, little preaching there. But. That was That was pretty yeah. awesome. Yeah, 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 I like that. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so what do yeah. you uh, – so – Keelan and Calvin both, uh, you know, we, we talk to each other a lot. Calvin, Calvin is, is along with me in, in a group of guys that got together to do our doctorate. And he's, he's, he is at the point now where he's sending us messages all the time to remind us of, of, of the plight of the African-American. And he does that on a daily basis. So Dr. Bell, I'm going to give this to you. Um, what are, what are steps here? What are steps for us to have these discussions and get past? Um, I'm not even going to say proceed because they're real hurts. They're, it's emotional. It's emotional out there right now, right? And it, it's hard for us to have these conversations. I don't want to get you mad. You know, I, I don't. And you don't want to get me mad. And, and, but how do we have these discussions, these true discussions, uh, these, to move people towards the throne of Jesus? And so, Matt, um, when I was uh, working on my MD up at, at Beeson, uh, I guess in, I began in 2007 um, through 2011. And uh, so the, the first day on campus there, I met a good friend of mine. I, I won't call his name. I, I leave him anonymous, but he, I'm sure he wouldn't mind sharing his name. But so he, I'm from Boyd, Alabama, one of the poorest zip codes in Alabama. He's from, his home is Mountain Brook, the wealthiest zip code in the state. And so that friend of mine and I, we 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 just we just clicked uh, the first day we set foot on, on that campus uh, in the in the MBA program. Uh, and uh, through the four years that we both were there, we just kind of took a slow process there. The four years we were both there, uh, we uh, began to just converse and talk about scripture, talk about the Word of God, talk about uh, life. Me being raised in Boa, living in Bethlehem, his life in Mountain Brook, and what have you. Two totally different worlds. I mean, worlds that were, were oceans apart. Uh, but this, this friend, uh, so uh, it, we, it, uh, we came to 2008 November. Uh, well, the elections coming up to 2008 in November. And Barack Obama uh, is running for, uh, he's, he's, he's the Democratic nominee uh, for the presidency. And, 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 and I remember he had, uh, this friend and I both standing in the hallways of Beeson in the common area. Um, we were, you know, just we would be around these guys, mainly uh, uh, Caucasian guys, so then they were mocking the fact that, that this black man could actually win the presidency against John McCain. Well, uh, and so Jay's, Jay's uh, you know, it, it frustrated me so bad to be able to hear these guys give that kind of dialogue. And so Jay, I'm, I'm sorry, I just gave you guys, well, I gave you his nickname, so you won't know his name. So Jay's uh, and I, uh, we would have this conversation. I tell them, listen, you know, how could these guys just right in my face, you know, mock this man as though because he seems to be African American, that is not even a reality that he can become the president of the United States. I mean, it's just, and I mean, they saw me standing there. It's like they intentionally said these things just to, 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 um, to, to get, get out of my skin. Well, so 
uh, when when uh, I would hear these guys make statements or different guys, people make statements, Jason and I would go home, get on the phone, and we begin to have deeper deeper uh, conversations. Uh, and just like I've been sending you guys met, uh, 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 messages, little excerpts from Dr. King every day, what I started doing is sending uh, this friend of mine, uh, Jace, I started sending him uh, excerpts from uh, King. As a matter of fact, I sent him a sermon from King because he had some, he was very defensive in, in some ways of these guys uh, that were saying these rude things in my way, even though I know this guy loved me with all his heart. Um, and so and as uh, I began to send him messages from King and say, okay, I understand what you know about King is that you think that, okay, he's a whoremonger, he's this guy uh, that, that, you know, he, he, uh, he uh, seemed to be coming this. Um, and so forth and so on, all the negative things that, that white males and white people thought about King in the 60s. Uh, but on the other hand, I listened to this man's message and see how relevant he is today, and this is 2008. And so he listened to one of the, the sermons that King preached of a, a knock at midnight. Uh, and he was so, so um, uh, um, I guess, in, uh, um, his, his heart was just melting, just hearing the message. He, he took it to his dad who lived in Mount Brook, said, Dad, listen to this sermon. As a matter of fact, and, and this guy, his dad actually visited our church after hearing that sermon. said, gosh, that man, I've always thought him to be this communist guy who's a whole monger and so on and so on, who just really turned, just aggravated white America in the 60s. And this man's message is a very relevant message, a message that's relevant now. Long story short, though, to, 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 get to, to get to the core of your question, is that this friend and I, just through us having a conversation just about sermons by Martin Luther King. Uh, and we began to, to just dialogue about you know, my experience, his experience, how he perceived the situation, how I perceived the situation. And that brother and I, uh, we made a covenant with one another. It was kind of the, the Mother Teresa concept. You know, Mother Teresa, someone asked her, you know, how did it, how was it you reach these thousands of people uh, over the course of your, 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 your lifetime, over the course of your ministry? She said, just one person at a time. Well, in this relationship that was forged at that time, it was is that we made a covenant that we're going to be able to, we're going to talk to each other, we're going to say some things that sometimes the, the other person doesn't understand, the other person doesn't like. Uh, it's like Democrat, Republicans, they talk to each other. Uh, but not to each other. They hear each other, but don't really hear each other. This brother and I made a covenant that I'm going to listen to you. Uh, and even though I may make it, I may be infuriated about what you just said, I know that you really love me. And I think that that somewhere along the lines that that, these, that same kind of relationship is going to have to take place just maybe one relationship at a time uh, between people of, of different ethnicities. Mm-hmm. Um, you. And I just scratched the surface. Yeah, I, I think that's great, um, Calvin. You've you've been a brother to me, and and I appreciate our relationship, and I and I, and I hope that's, I hope, you know, I I hope that's uh, kind of like me and Keelan. We've had a relationship over the last two, three, four years, and we talk and try to be open. Keelan knows that I sometimes I open my mouth too wide, uh, <laughs> and he's laughing about it right now. But Neil, tell me. So this, we're getting closer. Well, I'll ask you, Tamika, first. We're getting closer to this, and and I and I know relationships matter. Uh, what would you What would you like to see happen in this movement that we're in? I mean, is there a way to make this right, or are we constantly going to be living in this tension? I think we'll definitely be living in this tension. I don't. I don't see this tension ending until Jesus returns. 
um, what we can do. I think what this will do, though, it will purify the church. It will um, unify the church um, because we know just in scripture, a lot of things have to happen before the church is unified and before Christ can return. Um, and so my prayer has been, as I'm reading and listening and watching different things, is to purify the church because, um, and I told Pastor Keeling this, I was um, watching a, um, a protest out in um, downtown Montgomery and we had someone, um, some, some man preaching the gospel, like he's out there preaching the gospel while they're protesting. That was a piece of protest. Um, but this one guy, I guess, who was leading this protest in downtown Montgomery, he was like, he's on his megaphone. He was like, if you guys want to tear things up and if you want to wreck the city, you need to go home. Here you got a guy preaching the gospel, giving them Jesus Christ, and a guy saying, I want this to be a peaceful protest. You know what those, those kids did? They wanted to attack the one that wanted to have a peaceful protest. They did nothing to the man that was giving them the gospel. Like, and I was like, this is a powerful moment uh, for the church to reach individuals who are hurting, who want justice, and just like Neil said, to give them the gospel message and to bring them to Christ. And this is a pivotal moment for the church, um, to purify the church. That's what, that's what I see this as. That's good. Okay. Dr. Neal, tell me, I mean, I'll, I'll give you the same question, but maybe tweak it a bit. Uh, is there a chance for the church to really be, to spearhead a movement of justice and a movement of peace and gospel? Um, and when I mean the church, I mean the Christian church in the U.S., which, you know, you as well as I know is Catholic, it's, uh, there's Protestants, there's Orthodox. Is there a way through this? Uh so yes, but I, so I I love what Calvin and Tamika both said about one about one-on-one -on -one relationships and two about the gospel being central. That's so important. Um, but again, I'm going to go back. I think this kind of shows you why the sort of deep theological foundations and and philosophical foundations are so important. So you're talking about how can we work for racial justice and, and racial reconciliation, or you're healing these hurts, fixing things that are wrong. How can we do that? Depends how you define racism. So if you define racism as uh, ultimately a heart issue, it can bleed out into systems, but it starts with the heart, versus if you define racism as a system issue that is it's produced by in these systems. Depending how you define it, depends on that's how they how it's going to shape how you do anti-racism. It's a sort of a technical phrase, but what I'd say is this: there there are the people, the, the scholars who are mostly secular who uh, think about racism in terms of structures of power, they, their remedy for racism is not only um, non-Christian, it is anti-Christian. And in fact, if we bring it on board as a way to fix racism, we're going to destroy the church. And Whereas if you, if you define racism biblically, which I'd say is it's ultimately a, a heart issue, then the solution to that racism is ultimately the gospel, which is the source of the solution to every sin. But it, let me tell you what the problem with the, sort of the other viewpoint is, this idea of systems being the, the sort of heart of racism. Uh, the, 
the most popular, number one bestseller on Amazon right now is a book called White Fragility. It's number one on Amazon, number one on Audible, editors pick for Kindle. So it is everywhere. It's been on the New York Times bestseller list for about 18 months in a row since it was released. Never heard of Well, it's an I see evangelical pastors all over the country promoting this book. Yeah, White Fragility. So Robin D'Angel. But here's a quote from her book. You, so Calvin, you talked a great, great. You said talk, talk about friendship, one-on-one, life-on-life friendship that breaks down racism. Right? Listen to what D'Angelo says on page eighty-one. Racism invariably manifests itself within cross-racial friendships as well. Racism cannot be absent from your friendship. And she's emphatic. Every interracial friendship contains racism. You'll never escape it. The white, and she says, here's another quote from her, in a, a paper she wrote uh, called Addressing Whiteness in the Nursing Education. She said this, the question is not, did racism take place? It's not the question, but rather, in which ways did racism manifest in this specific context? She literally thinks everything a white person does is a way of reinforcing their superiority. Everything. You cannot be friends with a white person, and she's white, by the way. <laughs> but, but, so, and she, because she thinks racism is just a structure that pervades her entire society. It's everywhere. It's, it's in everybody's mind, and it controls all of your action. If you really believe that every white friend you have is doing nothing every moment except for trying to establish their dominance over you as a black person, you will destroy the church. You cannot have those friendships that are the heart of loving each other in Christ and breaking down those barriers and opening people's eyes to how things are different. You, you will crush the church. You will tear it from limb to limb. And, and it all goes back again to how do you understand our problem? Is racism a sin at, a, at a heart or is it sort of embedded in structures? And so what I'm saying is when we say how do you work for uh, – how do you oppose racism? you got to go back to what is it. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying – again, I'm not saying we never change laws. We never work to d- do things at a structural level. We do. We do that with abortion, right? But it always goes back to what you think the problem is. And if you, and, and especially if you think the church is the, the, the people of God who have been ransomed by Jesus and they're your brothers and sisters, you cannot approach them as if they want to, they are always imposing their whiteness on you and always seeking, you know, to, 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 to show that they're dominant over you. That, that will make you paranoid. It'll make you bitter. And, and I, so I just really want to make sure that we're on solid biblical grounds in terms of what we think the problem is and how we can solve it. That makes sense. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, also, I guess, uh, I guess, uh, a good question would be, um, is the church being destroyed now? Like, if so, if the like secularists, if they, if the the way they advocate for, you know, this whole system to be reversed, um, and then that that'll destroy the church. Um, uh, maybe a question could be as well is the church destroyed now because racism has been thriving super deep for super long. So when we think about it, it's half a millennium. It's half a millennium. And racism has been, you know, like, just like racism scared away Charles Spurgeon. 
mm-hmm. when the, when Alabama, Montgomery, Alabama said, man, you show up here because we, we heard that we heard old Moody, D.L. Moody trying to get you over here to do that tour. You're going to mm-hmm. find Montgomery, Alabama said you're going to find a stout cord around your eloquent mm-hmm. throat. Mm-hmm. That's back in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. And so, <laughs> so, you know, as far as uh, the like racism, the system, yeah, because uh, it's been it's been moving forward. The only thing is it, it morphs. So like if if we change, like if it doesn't matter, like the the power. I mean, and it's weird how the power moves because if we change anything, racism morphs itself and molds itself around that and fits it perfectly. Mm-hmm. So Emancipation Proclamation. Racism said, man, we're about to lynch all, any business owner, any black business owner we can find. Uh, if we isolate them, we're going to kill them and hang them. 2,000 people will show up from church. And sometimes they will actually finish church. They'll go to church. So these are good Christians now. They will go to church and then they'll even bring a train in 5,000 strong. They'll come from a city and they'll be like, hey, we're about to lynch a black man today. Get out of church from hearing some good old preaching. And they'll have a picnic surrounding an African-Americans or several African-Americans being lynched. But see, the church still went on. Mm -hmm. And it's continuing to go on. And see, a pre-Emancipation Proclamation 1863, you know, the church survived. You got Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was like, man, I love my slaves. Even though Johnny Jr., you know, Johnny Jr. was like, no, dad, that ain't right. You know, he, he, Jonathan Edwards Jr., many people don't talk about him. He was an abolitionist. He didn't agree with daddy. But Jonathan Edwards and, uh, you know, uh, so, you know some, some of his contemporaries, like Brother George, uh, the great evangelist, you know, they had, they had their stuff, but the, but the church, you know, the, the, the church survived. So, and, you know, back to what I'm saying is, so if we remain, like, is it, I guess we may need to deal with the question that, so are we saying that we need to just kind of, like, so during this time, the way this racism is working, because you literally have someone who's in the upper hand and from, uh, from group economics that has been practiced for 300 uh, something odd years, or we could say back to the founding of the nation, 1776, if we want to get technical, like, are we saying that that is the type of system that the church is to be ma- maintained under? You're like, we can still say that that's the church and the church is not being destroyed, it's still existing. Mm-hmm. But if we try to advocacy, they embrace all these cats, the, the ones that I just named, all these, you know, they're on my shelf. Jonathan mm-hmm. Edwards, all those guys, they were embracing secularism because they were destroying the doctrine of the Imago Dei. They were being hypocrites. And then you could actually rape your slaves and not, not report it in your journals. It may be in your journal, but you can be a sound, like sound theologian, and you could be committing adultery with your slave, uh, you, you know, che- cheating on your wife in the wee hours of the night, and you could still hit up the pulpit, in you know, in the day, and and it is it is what it is. They embrace secularism. But now, like, so if we say that those who are secular now, if they advocate for uh, flipping this racism that, that is happening, 
that it'll destroy the church. So what do we do about about that? Like how do we how do we answer that? Is kind of what I'm saying. Like mm -hmm. is it is it to exist under this present form that the mm -hmm. church is good? And that if they, if the one, you know, the, those who are connected to BLM, the one who wrote the book, Fight for Agility, that kind of flipping of racism, mm -hmm. if we bargain for that, that's going to destroy the church, wipe the church out. Yeah. But now I, I will say that under either, either system, the church is going to stand because of who Christ is. Sure. Dr. Burford, if I, if I could, if I could uh, chime in on, on this. And so uh, when, when I first walked in the beef and the bit of the school, there in the chapel, um, you know, there in the dome, there, there are all the great uh, heroes of, of the faith, uh, uh, those martyrs and what have you. But in the center of them, there is this, this figure, this, this uh, I, I guess it was meant to be a Jewish figure of a, of a person, but it, it's, it's a, the figure of a white man. Uh, kind of uh, brownish hair with blue eyes. Um, that 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 it, each time I would walk, sit in kind of the front area in the chapel, I would and, and I would look up at that dome, and I was like, "Gosh, this is horrible for me as an African American man to be able to look up at this portrait of Jesus um, and and see this uh, European concept of what Jesus was like, this this slave master concept of what Jesus was like, this white man with the blue eyes." Uh, and so that image uh, of of this picture that my mama had in her house, my grandmother had in her house, my great grandmother had in, in her house—a uh, picture that I mean, gosh, you had better not, you know, that, that picture had to be desolate at all time because it was it was Jesus, this white man. Um, then when I, I took a trip down to well, well, I was at Southeastern Bible College, as a matter of fact, and I took a trip down to uh, uh, Belize with Doctor. Doctor, uh, oh gosh, Hughley. Yeah, Doctor Hughley, yes, yes, yeah, Doctor Hughley. Yeah, and so took a trip down there with Doctor Hughley, and I got down there in the church and and believes with those uh, African American people in there and there people that were you know believing. And in the churches there, what I the first portrait I saw was the picture of that white Jesus, even mm -hmm. in a in a church where it was mostly people of African descent. But that that's that's not even the kicker. But then I, in 2008, I went to Africa, to West Africa, to Ghana with a group of students from Beeson, and we studied Christianity in the Global South. And while we were there, we went into several churches around Ghana, and each, each one of those uh, Presbyterian churches that we attended, that, that's the group that was kind of sponsoring us while we were there. In every one of those churches, there was a picture of a white Jesus, <laughs> a, a white Jesus, and it, I was baffled. Uh, and I said to my, in my own mind, in belief in 2003 or four, whichever year it was, that Jesus is white out here in, in Central America. And God helped me when I got to Africa in 2008. I thought, God is a mercy. Jesus is white in Africa, too. <laughs> and, and so in my mind, I thought, gosh, this is one of the most heinous things uh, that has ever been done in the history of Christianity to put this portrait before people to help them to, in, in a, from, you know, say, white supremacy uh, over into slave, uh, you know, the, uh, the slave masters where they keep, they have to keep their, their slaves at bay by just kept, uh, forecasting that image, an image that, that lasted even, and that uh, my mother still has the image in her house right now, mm -hmm. as a matter of fact, and my grandmother. And so it's an image that's yet prevalent, and it's, it's, it's 
portrait of a white Jesus uh, that is kind of a an icon for uh, to to kind of help keep the church in in Alabama in the South, if if you will, uh, so that there's really never a, a, a level playing field for Black Christianity and White Christianity. And then, and then gosh, don't let me get off on a tangent there because uh, Keelan and and the other African Americans on this on this this uh, broadcast here. You know, white, black church and white church and white, black worship and white worship, they're just two different worlds. Sure. And just give it context, you know, because I went to Beeson as well. You know, that Petro uh, Bizatsu or whatever his name is, he's Romanian, right? I mean, he came out of communist right. Romania, and he was he was mimicking kind of Byzantine and Renaissance art. So that's the Jesus of the Byzantine period, right? So, and that's a question too, Neil. You know, when you, when you know the historical context from, from my end, you have Alabama, which is at least, you know, uh, 70% white and Caucasian. We don't think about a chapel that just looks like, you know, bi- what we would consider like a Byzantine uh, representation of a chapel. But then you have Calvin and or Keelan or Tamika, they would go in and they have a totally different outlook and it's valid, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I want to know that. But also, but it seems like from my perspective, and I would think from others, uh, that there is a blindness there to what their perspective is. But then I look at it and I'm like, but I don't think Petro meant anything by it. Absolutely. Do, do you think, Absolutely. That, I mean, there's, there's two things going on there. You know, I don't, he might be drawing because that's, you know, Renaissance art, but to a, to a, to a group of people, it's, a system and a, and a justified history of just widespread oppression and they feel it. It's just part of who they are. And I have to recognize that. And I have to recognize that it's valid. Right. So how do you, how do you, how do we have this conversation across the board of, of, of apparent blind spots? Like, I don't want to give a, I'm, I'm just totally honest with you. I want to be the moderator here, but be totally honest with you. I don't want to feel guilt of things I didn't do, but I want to feel, I want to feel open to the, to, to honest kind of anger and legitimate history of oppression. So where do I, as a Christian, as a Christian white man, mm-hmm. how do I deal with that properly? So I think, well, let me just try to paraphrase the questions being asked here. I think the question is, okay, we see these secular models for racial I mean, it's not really racial reconciliation because that's not their goal. <laughs> their goal is to transform the system or to, to revolution, to have a revolution and destroy the system. So those models would destroy the church. But racism has destroyed the church, or, and not destroyed it, but racism has, has hurt the church for hundreds of years. So, so if your choice is between hurting the church with these secular models and hurting the church with racism, well, what are you supposed to pick? And that's a good question. I mean, and I think... To, to sort of show people how, you know, striking the white Jesus is, uh, people are like, well, I don't get it. It's just, that's just, that's what he, he looks like. Well, show them a picture of black Jesus, right? I've seen pictures of black Jesus. They would flip out. You're like, well, that's as unhistorical as your white blue eyed Jesus. Right? <laughs> that's not what he looks like. And, and frankly, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, you know, anti pictures of Jesus anyway. I'm kind of a little bit, you know, iconoclastic in that sense but my point is if they don't see why the white jesus is a problem well show them black jesus and they get all upset well now you see why it's a problem right so 
but how do you then how do you show people that racism is still a problem today and we can't i think what people do is they react against they react against the secular models basically they react against quote unquote cultural marxism they react <laughs> against that and their solution is just stop talking about race we're just we're beyond that we're post-racial and we had barack obama for two terms we're done now and i think that's so what I try to do is I show people that no racism really is a present day sin. And, and one thing can help is just talking to your friends about your experiences. Like I've been called names. I've been called slurred. I've experienced these things. The other thing I, I show them in my talks is data. So uh, I give a talk about, about critical race theory or critical theory, but I always spend 10 minutes talking about modern day racial discrimination. Um, one slide I show is about uh, surveys of church-going church Christians who attend church regularly about, and it's hard to say now, but in 2008, I think, um, it, the, the number was that about 25% of church-going Christians believed that interracial marriage was wrong. So about 25, in 2008, it was church-going, regular attenders, okay? And I gave that talk in New Orleans and some guy in the back of the room was like, man, I'm from Mississippi. And if the number was that low in Mississippi, I'd be like, God's at work. Amen. <laughs> because because he's like, where I'm from, it's probably 50%. And another, a friend of mine that I met down in New Orleans named Tim was like, yeah, man, I'm from rural like Arkansas. And it's got to be like 60% or something like that. So my, my point is, and these people, these were not, these were not people looking to cause trouble. These are people that are just like, man, it is a real thing. Um, so, but what's the solution then? If we can't have the, we don't want the secular model, but we don't want the, the, the we don't want racism either. Um, what's the answer? And I, I always point people towards a book called Beyond Racial Gridlock by George Yancey. He's a sociologist at Baylor now. He's a, he's a friend of mine. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll full disclosure, but he goes through the different models for racial reconciliation. You know, how do you um, get how do you build trust between people of different races who don't trust each other right now for various reasons? And he goes through, what's nice is he goes through the four secular models and says, here's the good in them and here's the bad in them. Here's why, here's the, what, how, how they're, they're beneficial and here's how they're actually detrimental. But what he points out is that they, are, they all fall short ultimately because they're not grounded in the gospel and particularly in the idea of, of uh, our sin. Because they, they either don't think racism is really there and it's really that bad because they don't think we're all sinners, or they think that you know, white people are uniquely bad, that black people are also not bad. No, we're all sinners. So his focus in that book is, after walking through these models, he says, look, if you want to make racial progress in your church and, and build trust, um, it, the model needs to be based on a recognition that we are all sinful and then we all need to actually listen to each other. There, you know, you, you and that, Calvin, you talk about building relationships. You, you do this, there's no magic bullet. You don't just say, we're going to have this percentage of, you know, people of color by this year, and here's our charts, and here are our figures. You have to sit down with your brothers in Christ and pray with them and, and talk to them and listen to them. And he talks about something called active listening where you listen to them, and then before you talk, you repeat what they said back to them and say, did you say this? And they say, yes. Okay, you heard me. 
You heard what I said and you repeated it in your own. So, and you're like, well, that's kind of cheesy. I, is that going to work? But the, the point is, it's not a, a band aid. It's going to get you to actually hear your brother's experiences and listen. And I think when you're actually doing that, then it, you begin to see their perspective better. When they when you know that you're listening to them, that my pastor told a, a pastor who's Hispanic. He told a story about a racist. I'm going to start crying again. He had a, a racist neighbor who was flying a Confederate flag in his yard. It was really racist, and he was my, my the pastor was trying to share the gospel with this this, uh, this friend, and he couldn't do it. And his English was still kind of bad. He moved to the states uh, fairly recently. And at one point, he asked his neighbor. He said, "I heard this phrase in English. I don't understand. Can you explain it to me? What's the phrase?" And he said, and he told him the phrase, and the neighbor said. That's a phrase used to describe people that everybody looks down on. They, they, they just, they're, just, they're considered just scum and worthless and, and valueless. The phrase was white trash. And when the pastor, the Hispanic pastor, when he heard that human beings were being called trash, he began to cry. And mm -hmm. when his neighbor saw that this man, who he despised, when he was weeping for his own people, he felt moved. Because he realized it wasn't about us versus them. It was like a man who loved people made in God's image, and that broke his own heart, and he could hear the gospel then. And so but the point is here, if you, if you give in to bitterness and you give in to saying, well, they're the enemy, these terrible racist people are the enemy, and I don't need them. I'll have my own church. That's not how we can view the church. This is Christ's body. And so when you actually are willing to uh, have dialogue and listen and learn you and that's how you reach people's hearts and that's how change happens you, you can impose all the change you want to the law right here's what we're going to do to fix racism but you got to capture the heart and again that happens like kevin said through relationship and through talking so i i wish i had an answer like well here's the five-step plan you know it all, it all, it's all begins with a it all, it's all literative like i don't have that but i think what george points us to is a way to dialogue fruitfully i do think it can work yeah, and, and I'm, rem I'm reminded by Bonhoeffer, right? I mean, when Bonhoeffer says, I see Jesus in you and you see Jesus in me. Like, I, Calvin, I, I didn't see Jesus in the top of Sanford, right? I, I, a Beeson's Chapel. I see Jesus in Keelan, right? Every day that we had lunch together with those seventh graders, which, by the way, try to teach seventh graders. You know, that, that'll really teach you whether or not you're a Christian, right, Keelan? <laughs> we had lunch together with seventh graders, and we had some of the most wonderful talks about everything. And, I, and, and, and in those moments, I didn't see Keelan. There were moments where I saw Jesus. And I didn't, I, I didn't see black Jesus or white Jesus. Mm -hmm. My spirit connected with his spirit. And we mm -hmm. both saw what, what we will see on the throne, Jesus together. And that's a very Bonhoeffer-esque thing. Right? And the same thing with, with Dr. Bell. And I'm sure the same thing with Tamika and Neil. Um, did you have something to say? Somebody was going to say something. Yeah. yeah, Doug, yeah go, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh. I'm sorry. Are you? Oh. Um. So that 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 just really drew my mind back to um the point. Well, to, to, to answer it first, and then I'll kind of say what I'm going to say is that people just need to really believe the word of God. That'll 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 just knock it out right there. <laughs> like people need to believe the gospel because see. You know, when I when I turn, I, I take my word, and then I turn to uh, Titus, 
Titus says in what it says, uh, Titus chapter two and uh, <laughs> verse 11 through 12, it says, for the grace of God, and see, the grace of God, it, it causes a response. You know, people talk about grace, 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 but there's actually a response that it, it causes to happen in the heart of the believer. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, okay? We understand that it does that. That's the part we hear preached a lot. But then it also says this right here, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. And then it says, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the, Lord, of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. So that's what the grace of God does. The grace of God pr produces an action. So, you know, and when we look at the gospel being wrapped up in all that, man, we just need to really believe the word of God, okay? Africans are converted, you know, they're brought across uh, the, the, the Atlantic and they're being, uh, you know, the Baptist venture out in uh, Montgomery, right? Let's go back to the 18, to the mid 1800s, a little bit before the Southern Baptist Convention formed and even after, you know, so we're downtown Montgomery during this time at a small little fountain where, where this is a fountain right now, that's where First Baptist was. And then this is before AME churches were formed. This is before any black church was formed. The Africans, the newly converted Africans, they take on to this message so well that, so you mean to tell me we're brothers in Christ? Even though you're my master, man, that's a sweet message. They start getting converted. But see, as they're sitting in the churches, they start to find out that the people don't believe what they told them. You see that? And so they're just like, wait a minute, we believe this. So, you, but you said, sit here under your, uh, under your footstool, James chapter two. Oh, you want me to sit over there in the corner? Oh, you want me to sit way back in the balcony? I can't even hear the man preach down there. And so then you had it to where they started seeing that people weren't really believing the words that they were saying, i.e., Hippocrates, hypocrisy, two-faced. And so guess what? What was formed out of that? That which we refer to now as the black church. They were just like, hey, if you're going to do that, we're not going to, no, nah, we can't settle for that because you, I mean, you're, you're, you're saying uh, uh, when you invite me around to eat, when we go over here or we go over there and I bring my family, you know, I'm still a slave and everything. I understand that. But you're communicating to me that you're my brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, but you are definitely not revealing that. As a matter of fact, you're actually taking on the same mindset and perspective as secularists. And so what happened was African-Americans, they, 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 uh, they formed their own church. That's why you have the African Methodist Episcopal. That's why you have, you know, National Baptist uh, Convention, the Black Baptist Wing, because they were just like, man, if nobody's going to stand up for the Imago Day in this nation, we will. And uh, so, you know, you just, so th that's what I'm saying. Back to it. Like, what's the solution? Man, I think we need to go back to what the African Americans were trying to teach, <laughs> you know, the, the people who enslaved them, like try holding them accountable to, hey, man. You need to, so that was before the term white trash came. 
hey, you need to pay attention to the words that's written in this Bible you're reading. You see what I'm saying? And so I think if we get back there, man, and, and really pay attention to the word of God, and you really start seeing this stuff break off. I'm sorry, uh, Calvin, you go ahead. Yeah, Dr. Berg, real story today that happened today, it kind of feeds into what Neil and um, uh, Keelan has, has expressed about you know, uh, adhering to the word of God. And so a, a, a good friend of mine uh, whom I worked with, with uh, and whom I worked with back uh, in 2000, from 1999 to 2001 at Kirkland Clinic at UAB. Um, and so this guy, he was on Facebook today, this morning, ranting about some very conservative issues, uh, frustrated about the protests and all of that. Uh, he's a Caucasian guy, of course. Uh, just very ticked off about some things and said some very racial type, type stuff. Uh, and so I, 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 I saw this message, and I went to the kitchen. I got some coffee. I prayed, and I thought, God, okay, so I feel I feel a need to respond to my friend. And we could be friends. We call each other brother. Uh, and so I went back to my room. I picked up my phone uh, prayerfully, and, and it's like, Lord, fed words into my mind. And I responded to him. His mother passed away last year. So I, I responded to that brother and said, hey, you know, how are you doing um, you know, uh, at, uh, since your mother, I mean, I, I'm, I'm praying for you. Um, I know that. Uh, how, how are you doing uh, since your mom passed? And then, actually, I just asked about asked about his well-being, his welfare. Didn't even address anything that he put in the post. But and of course, he understands. I'm an African American man reading this post. He, I'm, he, I'm sure he knows how it impacted me. And do you know, within five minutes, he sent me this almost uh, dissertation of a message. Um, to just uh, just be grateful and thankful and say, oh, God, this is a move of God. How could this have happened? And you saw my message and you responded. Long story short is that I just uh, uh, encouraged his, encouraged him. Let me know I was praying for him. That I'm, I'm thinking about him. I love him. Uh, and within 10 minutes of our interaction, he pulled everything that he had posted, all of those very hateful insults and all those things. He pulled them down and then reposted with a very apologetic statement uh, and, this, and then to remind his audience that he just saw God move in an awesome way just through our interchange over, over uh, a Facebook uh, message post. What a fantastic conversation and what an honor it is to be able to uh, be with each and every one of them um, in, this, in this recording and during this time and to be able to do it in such a Christ-like manner. Uh, to be reminded that we have a sin problem, but Jesus came to fix that. And that's the goal and mission of Tactical Faith, to have conversations like that so that we as the church can be prepared to go out and be an ambassador. I'm going to leave you with a little bit of an image. We've been thinking about this lately. Uh, we in the apologetic world like to think about the courtroom, but maybe we should switch that image to think about the pilgrim that's making his way towards the new heaven and the new earth. And as those who are looking at us, those who are not believers could look at us with joy, look at us with the hope that we have within us, and maybe they'll seek after us and seek after the truth that we have. And that's Jesus Christ. And uh, it is my honor and my, and my privilege to be a part of Tactical Faith. And if you have any more information or want any more information for Tactical Faith, 
Uh, go to tacticalfaith.com. You can email us at info at tacticalfaith.com. Listen, we are a small organization, and uh, we would love to have you on board. We would love to have your support. Uh, thanks again.